0: The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, David Cameron embarked on his first trip to America as British Prime Minister, and in some ways his timing couldn't have been worse. What should have been an opportunity to build his relationship with President Obama was overshadowed by the problems that BP, once known as British Petroleum, is having both in capping the oil spill in the Gulf and now because of allegations that BP lobbied for the release of the Lockerbie bomber. We'll be talking about that Cameron trip to Washington in this week's podcast. We'll also hear a report from Helen Worrell, who's been speaking to the former Afghan finance minister, Dr Ashraf Ghani, about aid, distribution and corruption in Afghanistan.
2: There's too many separate organisations. They are uncoordinated. They cannot be coordinated. The comparison is feudalism compared to, to centralised monarchy.
0: We'll also be looking at Iran and just how close it is to the bomb, but first, let me turn to you, James Blitz. Thanks for joining us here in the FT studio. It should have been a good time for Cameron to, to go to Washington. It's always something that, that uh, British prime ministers rather revel. But in fact, it was rather a, a difficult visit in some ways, wasn't it?
3: Yes, it was difficult. As you say, this should have been good. And there's a clear sense that the Obama administration does not want to make the same mistake. With David Cameron, that it did with Gordon Brown, which is really almost humiliating the British Prime Minister on his visits. Obama seemed to rather ignore Brown on, on the two visits that he made to the US during his tenure as Prime Minister. So there was a real sense of sort of wanting to have a good relationship, but the trouble is the whole question of BP and its role in the extradition of Abdul Basit Ali Magrahi, uh, the Lockerbie bomber to Libya three years ago, really dominated the the visit.
0: Let's get to that in a second but I thought Cameron also said some quite interesting things about how he regarded the special relationship. He seemed to be in a sense trying to lower the stakes, trying to de-dramatise it.
3: Yes, that's right. I mean, this government has a much more pragmatic approach to foreign policy than we saw from the UK in the Labour years, particularly when Blair was prime minister. There was much more of a sense with Tony Blair that uh, the UK wanted to hug the Americans close, uh, having a very close relationship with them come what may. And Cameron is really saying, um, I want to just be much more pragmatic this relationship is a good relationship because it works and there's no other sort of sentimental thing and the trappings about the visit, the way in which he went over he didn't go over in a special plane, he went on a a scheduled flight Um, he took the train from Washington to New York there was none of that sense of this is a really big moment and this is the British Prime Minister getting on a pedestal there was much more of a sense of there's business to do and and that's the way he approached it
0: Unfortunately, as we were saying, the business was, was really rather difficult business. A couple of weeks ago, people in Britain were kind of working themselves up into a bit of a lather over whether Obama was actually deliberately going after Britain on BP. That seems to have calmed down. But the the whole underlying issue of protecting BP as a sort of British national interest while trying to placate American opinion is is still a very difficult one, isn't it?
3: It is a very difficult one. In terms of Cameron's meeting with Obama, I think in the press conference and and the other issues about the meeting, there was no sense of Obama really wanting to, to, to press home on that. I think the White House has understood that Obama probably went just a little bit too far in some of the very aggressive stuff he was saying about Tony Hayward, the BP chief executive, a few months back The problem, unfortunately, for the British is that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee are now starting off this inquiry into why McGrath was extradited from the UK to Libya a few years ago. And it is very embarrassing indeed, because here you have Congress effectively conducting an inquiry into a whole load of decisions that were taken inside the UK. And, of course, BP is right at the heart of that. It's one of the reasons why this whole thing has become a big issue in the US, because it's seen as another way of getting at BP not just on the oil slick, but now on the suggestion that they lobbied for the extradition of a terrorist who was responsible for the deaths of 270 Americans.
0: Now, just remind us a little bit about the circumstances surrounding McGrawkey's release. As, as I recall, the idea was that, or the, the story, was that this was a sort of compassionate thing, that the man was on the on the point of death, and yet, rather awkwardly for the British government, he seems to be alive and kicking, and these questions about whether there were bigger issues at play Oil contracts, etc., are now being revived.
3: Yes, there are really two stages to the process of Megrahi's extradition. The first was that in 2007, the British government signed a prisoner transfer agreement with the Libyan government, which which created the principle that uh, people who were imprisoned, Libyans who were imprisoned inside the UK, could be transferred back to Libya to serve the rest of their time in jail. That was something which was agreed without any specific reference to Megrahi's at the time. And that was really done because I think the British government under Blair felt pretty strongly that it had done an awful lot to bring Libya back in from the cold. It was one of the really big successes, actually, of British foreign policy in the Blair years, one of the few, which is actually that they turned Gaddafi away from being this international pariah to somebody who dealt with the international community. So they said, OK, we'll sign this prisoner transfer agreement. But of course, there was at the same time a good deal of lobbying by BP to get that prisoner transfer agreement signed. BP has never d- denied that. That was the first stage of the process. The second was then that the Scottish government uh, decided in late 2008 that it would extradite Megrahi to Libya simply on the basis of compassionate grounds. It took the view, wrongly of course, that he was a person uh, facing a terminal illness, had only a few months to live. It made that decision without any reference to. Business, the PTA or anything else, it just went ahead and did it. But the combined effect of the two is to have created this enormous confusion about the extent to which his uh, his extradition was driven by business and political considerations rather
0: than the considerations relating to his health. And how much legs do you think this story has? I mean, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is starting this inquiry, and it must be a bit of a dilemma for the British government. On the one hand, they don't want to appear to be obstructing uh, perfectly legitimate questions. On the other hand... If the Foreign Relations Committee is digging into a pretty murky affair in a mood in which it's extremely angry with BP anyway, and Cameron's goal is to kind of protect British uh, national interests, protect BP, it must be a real dilemma for him.
3: It, It is a real dilemma. As you rightly say, on the one hand, Cameron is facing this ghastly prospect that the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is going to be investigating a whole load of events that took place in the UK, which the British are not investigating. And that's embarrassing. It doesn't it's not embarrassing for him personally, of course, it was the last government that took all these decisions. I think the problem for Cameron is that I think that in the time that he's come into government and this is one of the considerations he has seen how much time retrospective inquiries take up, how much they absorb the life of government. We already have this huge inquiry into the Iraq war, which we're in the middle of. I think Cameron has been particularly bothered by the fact that we're having also an inquiry now into complicity of MI5 and MI6 officers in allegations of torture against Guantanamo detainees. That also, as an inquiry, has taken up an enormous amount of internal effort in in the Whitehall system. And so I think there is a sense that the UK really wants to try and resist having yet another inquiry on another issue relating to the last government. But I think it's going to be a very difficult line
0: to hold. OK, finally, you, you mentioned the Chilcot inquiry into Iraq, which is, as you say, absorbing a lot of time. It seems to have been trundling along for months now. But this week, it kind of burst into life a bit with the testimony of Eliza Manningham Buller, who's the former head of MI5. What did she say and why was it so, so interesting and so significant?
3: She said two things which I kind of knew about before, but to actually hear the head of MI5 say them in a very forthright way was quite extraordinary. The first was that the advice that she gave to ministers at the time of 2002 when discussions were happening about a potential invasion of Iraq was that Saddam basically posed no threat no terrorist threat to the international community. There was no link between him and the events of 9-11, no link between him and al-Qaeda. There was no way in which he would be able to diversify any kind of weaponry that he might acquire to terrorist groups. Quite extraordinary to hear that, given that this was exactly the opposite argument that Tony Blair was not making. He was saying that Saddam posed all those threats. The second thing that she said was that the invasion of Iraq would trigger a huge wave of jihadism in the world, which would have very direct consequences for the UK. And she was exactly right about that. As she said, MI5 after the invasion in 2003 was swamped by uh, allegations of jihadism against a whole range of people, and that dominated her time. So to hear her say that and say it in the very forthright way she did was a very powerful sense of how this inquiry is inevitably going to lead towards criticizing the last government, and Tony Blair in particular, for the judgments that it made. When you hear a testimony like that, you can see that there was far more warning about the consequences of invasion and really the lack of any credibility for an invasion than perhaps we had thought at the time.
0: James, thank you very much indeed. Let's move on to Afghanistan now. Earlier this week, representatives from 60 countries met in Kabul to discuss the future of the war. Helen Worrell's been investigating what came out of the meeting, so over to you, Helen.
1: Thank you, Gideon. One of the key proposals to come out of the Kabul conference was that the Afghan government should take over responsibility for spending aid money itself, rather than funds being spent directly by Western civilian and military agencies. I spoke to Ashraf Ghani, former Afghan finance minister and presidential candidate, to find out why the current system of international aid distribution isn't working.
2: There's too many separate organizations They are uncoordinated. They cannot be coordinated. The comparison is feudalism compared to, to centralized monarchy. In a feudal system, dispersal of authority, is tremendous. When you have many organizations, most of them five to ten times bigger in the amount of resources, than the Afghan government, then that results in the problem of coordination. But the problem of coordination is made by the aid system itself.
1: Responding to media reports that as much as $3 billion had been siphoned from Western aid projects and flown out of Afghanistan to safe havens abroad, Dr Ghani said that it was the West's responsibility to control its own aid flow. So was it the donors' fault that aid was leaking out of Afghanistan?
2: They are part of the problem, yes. Because the donors have been unable to create a unified system of accountability. The donors have hired security companies that are untransparent,
1: unaccountable. However, Afghanistan's reputation for corruption has made donors reluctant to hand over money directly to the country's ministries. Afghanistan is currently second from the bottom of Transparency International's corruption index of 180 countries worldwide. Also, the charity Oxfam estimates that of the $40 billion worth of aid that has been committed to Afghanistan since 2002, under a third has been spent on development projects. Ashley Jackson, Oxfam International's Head of Policy and Advocacy in Kabul, Explains what problems the government is facing.
2: Well, I think there are a number of factors. I think you know the conflict has gotten worse. The rule of law has deteriorated, and that's you know that's created opportunities for more corruption. Um, and certainly, it's vice versa as well. Corruption has fueled the conflict. Has fueled criminality, um, and you know is eroding confidence in the state.
1: You know, the
2: past eight years, I think donors have looked for solutions outside of the government, outside of Afghan institutions. And that hasn't worked. It's only gotten them in deeper. I think ultimately one day the international community will have to leave and you have to build up something to take its place. The Afghan government has serious problems of corruption and accountability, but the solution is not to ignore those, it's to address them head on. And we have to start doing that now.
1: In order for 50% of aid to be channeled through the Afghan government within two years, as agreed at the Kabul conference, Work will have to be done to improve both the efforts of the Western agencies and Afghanistan's own institutions. Bertrand Despevel, an independent expert on fighting corruption, points out that part of the commitment towards greater transparency lies in funding an anti-corruption team to oversee the work, a cost which typically adds up to half a percent of the country's general budget each year.
0: You need people employed full-time in this fight. They have to be a dedicated team. They need to be paid. They have to have salaries. And the bulk of the expenditure, in my experience, is on salaries.
1: It is beyond doubt that Afghanistan will have to take more responsibility for its own security and humanitarian assistance. The real question is whether President Hamid Karzai can command the necessary political will and international support to achieve this. Dr. Ghani is optimistic about the possibilities for change.
2: We have no choice. We either improve and embark on this path or the loss would be quite significant. It requires leadership, it requires management, but it's doable. The proposition is not rocket science. It is something that pragmatically can be done. The key is a term that the Swedish foreign minister used, yes, strategic patience with each other. To be able to arrive it's a realistic, pragmatic pace of change and transformation, but to be able to produce a way forward, avoid the blame game and really enter into a partnership.
0: Thanks Helen. Now our final topic today is Iran. David Blair, our Middle East news editor, is with me here. David, the FT is carrying a story on the
4: progress of the Iranian
0: nuclear bomb, or should that be the, the lack of progress? What, what are we saying?
4: The Iranian nuclear program is encountering very serious technical difficulties. Uh, in particular, the number of operational centrifuges that Iran has to enrich uranium is actually falling Um, So at exactly the time when the nuclear program should be expanding its capacity to enrich uranium, it is in that respect going into reverse. Now, the facts here are very clear because the International Atomic Energy Agency still conducts inspections of Iran's nuclear facilities. So we know exactly what the background is. And if I can just give the figures because they're quite striking – In May last year, Iran had 4,920 operational centrifuges. In May this year, this had fallen to 3,936. So in other words, in the space of a year, they've lost about 20% of their enrichment capacity.
0: Now, why do we think this is happening? Is it sabotage or are they just incompetence? Is it harder than we think?
4: I think there are three explanations. One is technical incompetence on the part of Iran's scientists. They've gone about installing these centrifuges in a way that isn't recommended by the, by the experts. Um, they curtailed the testing process, and it is inherently a very complex thing to master. So I think technical ineptitude is certainly one explanation. The second is the effect of sanctions, which are specifically designed to prevent Iran from getting the spare parts and the components that you need to run these machines successfully. And the third element uh, is sabotage. Clearly, some governments have a very strong interest in preventing Iran from making progress. And there have been specific incidents which it's very difficult to explain other than through sabotage. For example, a few years ago, there was a mysterious power surge that blew out quite a large number of centrifuges. So the relative importance of those three explanations is a matter for debate. But no one really doubts that these are the reasons why.
0: It still seems to me a little bit surprising that they're having such difficulty because the Iranian programmes, you know, we've been talking about it for, for a decade now and countries that are, that are not noted for their, their wealth or technical capabilities necessarily have, have managed to get to the bomb. I mean, Pakistan and, and even North Korea. Why, why is it so tough for Iran or, or to put it another way, how, can, how come North Korea can do it and Iran can't?
4: Hmm. Well, I think the pressure and the scrutiny that Iran has been under now for a sustained period over its nuclear ambitions is pretty well unprecedented. I should qualify what we've been saying, despite the fact that the number of centrifuges has fallen they have still succeeded in enriching a significant quantity of low enriched uranium, which, if they were further to enrich it, would be enough, I believe to make something like two nuclear bombs So It's not as if this programme is falling to bits or, or making no progress at all It's simply in one particular respect, which is the number of functioning centrifuges. They've been going into reverse recently.
0: And, of course, people who who, uh, want to raise the alarms about the Iranian nuclear program will perhaps say, well, we can't necessarily rely on the IAEA because they're seeing what they're seeing, but there are, there, we, we've discovered in the past that there are secret aspects to the Iranian nuclear programme.
4: Yes, the plant which we're talking about here is the Natanz enrichment plant, which is subject to IAEA oversight. But there could be secret facilities that we don't know about. And of course, there was one enrichment plant that was in the process of being constructed, in secret, that was disclosed by Western governments uh, back in 2009. There could be other facilities.
0: Finally, I mean, how do you think this story that we're running and and the general discussion of the progress of the Iranian
4: nuclear programme leaves the the state of debate about the prospects basically for war? Well, I, I think there's one thing we can say with reasonable certainty, and that is that 2010 will not be the critical year when the Iran crisis peaks and is resolved one way or the other. For some time, 2010 had actually been mentioned as being the moment of, of truth, but it probably won't be. I would imagine that perhaps next year probably won't be the crucial year either. Thereafter... It's anyone's bet. Um, I think the important thing to bear in mind is that everything that we say, everything that we've just discussed, is merely about timing. It's merely about when, finally, Iran reaches the crucial threshold how the world has to decide whether they're going to be allowed to cross it or not. That particular deadline may be further away than people thought, uh, but it's still approaching.
0: David, thank you very much indeed. And thank you also to James Blitz for joining me here in the studio and to Helen Worrell for her report on Afghanistan. I'll be away over the next three weeks, but World Weekly will keep broadcasting, so please do tune in. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. For now, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.